Hathor Laomer, king of Mentidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboyim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kadorla Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorla Omer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Sair, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anair. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Lord Jesus came for us. And we pray that you would help us to see his glory and rejoice in him 
with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen. This week, providentially, there was an article in the paper entitled, Remember Megumi Yokota, the girl North Korea snatched in 1977. And the story of this girl is that when she was 13 years old, she was walking home from school, and she's Japanese, and she was in her home city, and the North Korean government seized her. They snatched her, and they took her back to North Korea, where they forced her to become someone who taught the Japanese language to North Korean spies who were going to be sent into uh, the country of Japan to spy for North Korea. And as I reflected on this, the reason, the reason it's, it's in the news today is because her parents fought for her over the years. Her parents advocated for the government of Japan to get her back. They did everything that they could do, and now this is in the news because her father has died. He was 87 years old. She was 13 in 1977. That would mean she's born probably in 1964, 10 years older than me. She's probably still alive today in North Korea as a 56-year-old person. She didn't have an Abraham to go after her. This story in Genesis is an amazing story that we've just read. And it's a story that, as I've reflected on it this week, I've come to see things that I didn't see about it before, the way that it's really connected to so many other things that happen in the Bible. And, and I sort of feel like somebody who's, who's been taken into a foreign land, and I come back saying, that place is, in, this, this text is incredible, but it's a very foreign text to us. This text is an amazing text, but it may have gone by you in a way that you're thinking, I don't know why he's so excited about that passage. It seemed a little dry as he was reading it. So what I'm going to try to do is help us to get our heads around what's going on in this passage, and I'm going to ask that the, the map go up now on the screen, and I'm, I'm going to quickly walk through kind of the setup for the battle. Okay, so you notice in verse 1, we read, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Well, Shinar, if you see the word Babylonians and Babylon, that's where Shinar is. That's Mesopotamia. And in the ancient world, the, that was the superpower. But there wasn't really a, like a nation that we're dealing with like we have today. It was more like a chieftain or a warlord or you might say a gangster or a pirate. That's more like what these, these kings were in the ancient world. You would have a federation of these pirates who are doing the kinds of things that we read about here. Because what this coalition of kings does, and let's count them in verse 1, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. There's four of them there. What those guys are going to do, they're all from this region over here that we refer to as Mesopotamia, um, it, or, you know, the land between the two rivers. Uh, you can see, you sort of see the blue lines, and I've kind of been doing this map. The lower line is uh, the Euphrates River, and then the upper blue line is the Tigris River. It's the seat of ancient civilization. Those are the lords of the world at the time. That's who those four kings are. And what they're going to do is just go around raiding and plundering so you need to understand, these guys are not just kings. I mean, a just king says, I have people under my care, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to protect the people under my care so that if my people are attacked, I will fight off an attacker. 
A just king is not somebody who says, I'm going to go plunder, I'm going to go defeat those other people in battle to seize their wealth or to seize their land. Well, that's what these guys are doing. These guys are just, they're, they're like pirates. They're the pirates with the biggest weapons and the biggest armies. And there's four of them, all right? And, and they've gone, the reason that you, in the map you sort, of, you sort of see this Mesopotamia region and then coming down you've got kind of a colored region that takes you through the Holy Land or um, what we call Canaan, the land of Palestine. That's because that's the way that people traveled because all that place in between there where it says Arabia, that's all desert. And, you know, in the ancient world they don't have big water trucks to get them, or, or I don't know, they, ha- they don't have ways to transport a whole lot of water to get across that desert. So if they want to live through the journey, they've got to go where the water is. So they've got to go up along the rivers and then down through the land of Canaan if they're going to go down to Egypt. And Egypt and like Babylon and Assyria, those are the major powers of the day. So these worlds are connected through the land of Canaan. Now drop your eyes down to verse 9 of Genesis 14, and note how here again we read of Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Elam is kind of over a little bit to the east from Babylon, uh, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. There's those four kings again. So this, this account in verses 1 through 9 has the four kings at the beginning and the four kings at the end, all right? And then look at verse 2. These kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom. Now, Sodom, I don't know, you can't really, is there, I don't know if there's a way to make the map really big and kind of zoom in on the Dead Sea, but where it says, where, where you see the Dead Sea, where it says Hebron there, that's roughly the region that Sodom would be in, okay? So these four gangsters from the ancient Near East, you know, over there, the Mesopotamia, these four pirates, these buccaneer kings, they've come over to where Sodom is, which is close to where it says Hebron, and they're, they're now fighting with Bera king of Sodom, Birsha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemeber king of Zoboyim, and the king of Bela. And let's just see here. There's one, two, three, four, five of those guys. Now drop your eyes down to verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. And then at the end of verse 9, we read four kings against five. So verses 1 and 2 tell us about the four kings from the east against the five kings from the region of Sodom. And then verses 8 and 9 tell us about those same kings, the five kings from the region of Sodom in verse 8 against the four kings from um, the east. And, um, and then look at verse 3. This is really just telling us about the battle and, and the way that there was an ongoing conflict. Verse 3, all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. And then we get the history, verse 4. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. What's that? What that means is that whenever they start, when they started counting those twelve years, these, these Pirate kings from the ancient Near East had come over and they had defeated the kings of Sodom and, and the other four, the five kings in the, in the land of Canaan. And they had said to them, now what you're going to do is pay tribute to us. So your profits, your excess, you don't enjoy your luxury, you don't enjoy your wealth, it comes to us. And so for 12 years, they serve those kings and they basically pay them off to keep them from coming over. I mean, in another, in another place in the Old Testament... 
there's a deal like this made between kings, and one of the kings says, actually, he actually says this, this to the people of Israel. Yeah, we'll make a deal with you, but this is the condition. We're going to gouge out the right eye of every man in your community. Those are the terms of the treaty. And if you submit to that, we won't kill you. Those are the terms. So that's the kind of people that, were, I mean, these are brutal, vicious people that we're dealing with. Well, after 12 years, in the 12 years of putting up with the taxation from the pirate kings and paying them off, year 13, they decide we can't deal with this anymore. It would be better to fight to the death against these guys than to continue to submit to this. And so in the 13th year, they rebel. Well, here they come. Look at verse 5. In the fourth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in, the, in, the, in Ashtaroth Karnaim. Now, what they've done is they've swept through. They've come across from, from Babylon. They've swept down through the Holy Land. And the next group that we're going to read about them defeating here in uh, verse 5 are the Zuzim in Ham. Well, Ham is down there in Egypt. So these pirates, it's like they say, okay, they rebelled against us, and we're going to go get them, but, but first we're going to go further then we're going to go beyond them and take some more captives, and then we're going to come back up and defeat these people that live around the Dead Sea. So they go all the way down into Egypt where they defeat the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveth Kiriathaim, and the Horites, Horites in their hill country of Sire. And Sire is on the, it's on the other side of the, it's on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea, a, a, across from the Holy Land, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Now it's interesting. You may be familiar with some of these place names because this is the, the, the route that these kings take. So they go all the way down into Egypt, and then they're going to come back up to face off with the guys from Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that group of five. That's the same route that the children of Israel are going to take when they come up out of Egypt on their way to the conquest of the Holy Land. Okay, so that's all the setting in, in verses 1 through 9. Those are, it's, like, it's like Moses says, I'm going to tell you what's going on in the world we got these four pirate kings who are bullying everybody, and, and they're coming against these five kings in, that are around the region of the Dead Sea. Verses 10 through 16 are going to tell us about the battle. So look at verse 10. The Valley of Sidim, and you notice back up in verse 3, all these joined forces in the Valley of Sidim. That is the Salt Sea. That's the Dead Sea. The Valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, Verse 10, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now, when you read something like this, I think you should sit back and you should reflect on it. And you should think to yourself, I think, something like this. Uh, a king in the ancient world is the king because he's the leader. He's the guy who says, we're going to charge into battle, and I'm going to lead the charge. Well, what happens to the army if the guy who's supposed to be leading the charge says, uh-oh, I'm in danger, I'm out of here? That doesn't inspire courage in anybody, does it? In fact, what it suggests is about these guys, my life is really more important to me than my cause. My safety is really more important to me than the lives of these people that have charged into this battle with me. So, you know, we read a statement like this, and it doesn't, doesn't jump out at us from our culture. These kings of Sodom, they don't look like men of character, but that's what we're being told here. 
We're being told that these guys are cowards. These guys are, these guys are cowards. They're not good people, these guys that flee. So we read there in verse um, 10, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of them fell into the pits. And, and it's almost as though Moses is saying, you know, they got what they had coming to them. They're cowards, and they flee, and that's what happens to cowards. They fall into pits, and then the rest, they flee to the hill country. And the result of this, in verse 11, so you know, I, I love Winston Churchill. I don't know if you appreciate Winston Churchill like I do, but what Churchill said was, we've got to look the Nazis full in the face, and we've got to understand who we're dealing with here. And, and what Churchill said to the, the people of England was, if we don't understand who the Nazis are, we are going to be enslaved by them. And what Churchill, what he communicated to the English people was, it would be better to die fighting the Nazis than to come under their reign. That's how bad they are. And so um, he, he said, I mean, he said all these wonderful things, but one of the things that he said was, let this long, if this, he said, if this long island history of ours, talking about that little island of England, England, is to come to end at last, let it only be when the last of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. Now that's resolve. That's resolve that says that enemy is so vicious and so wicked and so evil that we're going to fight him until the last man among us dies. And that's why the nation rose up and fought off the Nazis. Well, that's not what Sodom and Gomorrah, their kings, have done. So verse 11, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And then they did to Lot what the North Koreans did to Megumi Yokota. I don't know what, why they're wanting to carry Lot off, but for whatever reason, we read here in verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. And there's kind of a progression in the, in the narrative. We saw last week that Lot chose the land of Sodom when Abram gave him the choice. And he, and he pitched his tents in the direction of Sodom. He was moving towards Sodom even though in chapter 13 uh, we read in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot is moving towards Sodom and now Lot's in Sodom. He's living in Sodom. So it seems that this is not going well for Lot. You know, he, he seems drawn to Sodom for the wrong reasons. And then he's not repelled by them when he gets over there with them. And he's living among them. And he gets carried off captive when they get defeated. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. Those, these three guys, Mamre and Eshcol and Aner, it's really, I mean, this is such a foreign world to us. Those guys in the Bible, they're described, this is the, this is the literal phrase, as the lords of the covenant of Abram. So that doesn't mean that they're like lords over Abram. It just means that they're partners or allies with Abram. So we use words like allies and in in, in uh, ancient Israel, you know, they use phrases like the lords of the covenant of. And so that's who these guys are, Mamre and Eshcol and Aner. And Abram's uh, allied with them. And Abram, I, I, want you to, I want you to get your heads around this for a minute because this is really, really important for us. Abram is going to summon out of his household 318 trained 
warriors. And they're described as being born in his household. I don't think that means he fathered them. I think it means that Abram's got this massive operation. That all these people are, are like under his care and in his employ. And for there to be 318 fighting men, we're probably, I mean, probably each one of these families maybe has one young man in the, in the fighting age range and then a whole bunch of other kids. And then, so let's just hypothesize that we got two parents for every one of these 300 men. Well, that's 600 some odd folks. And then all these 300 guys, that's 900 folks. We're already nearing 1,000 people. And I suspect that Abram, when he goes to get Lot, he's not leaving the flocks unprotected. And he's not leaving, you know, the operation unguarded, right? He's not irresponsible. So we're probably dealing with thousands of people and massive holdings of flocks and herds and a huge portion of land. Now, the guy at the top of that operation is going to be a really busy dude. He's going to have a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of plates spinning. And the reason that's important is because I think it would have been easy when they came to Abram and they said, this fugitive escapes. And he comes to Abram and he says, Lot's been carried off captive. Abram, he could have said, well, that's kind of what Lot gets for going and living among the Sodomites. He doesn't do that. He could have said, well, I'm really sorry about that for Lot, but I got all these projects that I'm busy with, and I don't, I don't have time to deal with his troubles. There's lots of ways that Abram could have responded. There's lots of ways that Abram could have said, basically, too bad for Lot. But look at what Abram does. Abram, and we need to look this full in the face, Abram takes a massive risk. There are four kings who have carried Lot off. I bet every one of those four kings has at least 300 guys with him. It's probably a larger force than that because they're going around conquering whole peoples, you know? They're running rampant all through the ancient Near East, all the way down into Egypt, and now they're fighting their way back up through and nobody can stop them. This is a, this is a big, powerful force. And Abram says, I'm going to come up with a plan worthy of the Navy SEALs. I'm going to come up with a stealth operation, and I'm going to go get my nephew back. This is, this is bold. This is risky. This, I think it's a calculated risk. I think Abram is confident in the Lord. I think he's confident in his men. This also, I think, shows us that Abram has been training these guys. I mean, there's not a, gov- there's not a widespread government, which means there aren't state troopers. There aren't, there's no National Guard. How does Abram protect all these people and all these holdings. Well, he's got his own little personal militia that's doing the protecting. Protecting the boundaries of his flocks and herds. Protecting the people under his care. And that's probably why these four kings, when they came through, they didn't mess with Abram. Because he's prepared. He's prepared. He's, he's thought through the implications. He's looked at the situation. And then he's prepared himself. And then Lot gets taken captive. And he calls out his 318 men. And look at what they do. Look at what we read here in in verse uh, 13. At the end of the verse, these were allies of Abram. That's that phrase. They were lords of the covenant of Abram. And then verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This isn't like he went, you know, to the next field. 
This isn't the neighboring place. Dan, if you look at that line that's the Jordan River, it goes all the way up to about, it's a little bit lower than Byblos, and then you, you got Damascus there. Dan is just over by Damascus. Abram goes from the south down where he is, probably around Bethel and Ai, all the way north to Damascus. He goes all the way to the northern part of what's now the nation of Israel. It's a long way. It would have taken more than one day, I suspect, for him to travel that, that distance. And then think about what he faced. As he gets close, he knows there's four kings with their armies. And they've got Lot. And I'm trying to get Lot back. So look at what he does here in verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So I, we're not told what exactly the ambush looked like, but by night, you know, he divides up the forces, and then they attack those four armies and put them to flight. They send them scurrying. And those guys flee from where Dan is up north of Damascus. They are running from Abram. Verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. That's amazing. That is a dramatic story that is, it's awesome what Abram did there. Now, I want to invite you to think of another passage and, and I'm going I'm, to, I'm, before I tell you where this passage is, I'm just going to start describing it in the hopes that your, your synapses and connections in your brain are going to start firing with, oh my goodness, that's just like what Abram did in the rescue of Lot. So in this passage, the Midianites had come up against Israel and they were like the sand of the seashore. And they were, they were Amalekites among them, and there are Amalekites in this passage in Genesis 14. And they're raiding and they're plundering. And interestingly, a prophet actually arises within Israel and reminds the people of Israel of what God did for them at the Exodus. And then um, the angel of the Lord comes to this guy who's hiding from the enemy. And he says to him, greetings to you, O valiant warrior. And he, I mean, it's ironic because the guy doesn't look like it. He's hiding from the enemy, right? And the angel of the Lord calls Gideon. And you remember the story? It's really eerily similar to this story. Gideon, he, he gets called by the Lord. He goes out to do this. First, he's got 22,000 people. Well, they winnow that down to, to 10,000 people. And then do you remember how many people Gideon took into battle? 300. Isn't that interesting? Abram's got 318 people. And G the Lord orchestrates the situation so that Gideon only takes 300 people to go and fight against, against the Midianites. Gideon, by night, divides his force and ambushes the enemy. I mean, it's, the, it's almost like it's the same story. And he captures, in the midst of all this, a young man who gives him information, just like this fugitive coming to Abram. Um, and then now, now, tragically, I think that one of the points that the author of Judges is, is making, what, it, what he wants us to do is, I think the author of Judges wants us to think about Genesis 14. And in Judges chapter 8, Gideon takes the plunder of the enemies and he makes an idolatrous ephod. And the people of Israel sin 
Because Gideon did not devote that stuff to the Lord. He, made, he, he sinned with the plunder. Well, we're going to see, as we continue in Genesis 14, that Abram refuses sinful plunder from Sodom. Well, but there's another story, isn't there? And, and this, was, this is why I asked Danny to read the passage that he read. Because in the same way that enemies struck and took captive uh, Lot, enemies... Amalekites included, struck and took captive David and, or David's city and David's wives. And this, just like Abram pursues, David pursues. And then just like uh, Abram, he was prompted by the fugitive, David comes upon that man who's been left for dead. And do you rem- I don't know if you remember this from 1 Samuel 30. I can't remember whether or not I had Danny read this verse. But David starts out with 600 men. Well, 200 decide that they're too tired to go on, and so only 400, which is not that far from 318, only 400 men continue with David in pursuit of the enemy. And in both cases, um, both Abram and David, they strike and overpower the enemy. They bring back all the captive, and to use the King James language of Ephesians 4, what they do is they take captivity captive. In other words, what had been taken captive, they capture and take it back. And then in the same way that, that um, in this case, in Genesis 14, we're about to read how Melchizedek is going to bless the Lord. Well, in David's case, that Egyptian invokes God with David. He says, if you will swear to me by your God that you won't hand me over to my master, I'll tell you where they are. And so it's interesting how there's a person outside the covenant community, in both cases, invoking the living God. And there are other parallels that we could talk about. But, but why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because I think all of this is relevant to Psalm 110. That we, we started our service this morning with Psalm 110 talking about how the Lord Jesus, God says uh, to, to the king from David's line, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then you keep reading in that psalm, and the Lord Jesus is going to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And I, I submit to you that I think that David is reflecting on the victory of Abram in light of his own victory, recounted in Psalm 100, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 30, also informed by the victory of Gideon. And he's thinking in terms of, this is what the future king from my line is going to do for his people. He's going to achieve that kind of victory. So the enemy has taken Christ's dominion. This is, this is Jesus' world. This is the world in which Christ is going to reign. And the enemy has taken captive people that belong to the Lord Jesus. And he didn't sit up there in heaven and say, well, I'm sorry, i got a world to run. I'm too busy to deal with those people. And he didn't, he didn't say, well, it could be a re- really risky operation for me to try to go get these people. No, knowing full well that it would cost him his life. One man against the world. That's what happened with the Lord Jesus. He came for us. And he is in relentless pursuit of all who belong to him. If you're you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I I wonder if you think about the ways that God in his mercy is actually trying to draw you to himself. He's actually trying to rescue you from awful slave masters that are destroying your life. 
And, and the Lord Jesus, he's going to keep coming from you, for you, and he's going to defeat everything that holds you captive, and he will mercifully and lovingly liberate you. That's what he's after. He wants you to be free. So the enemies have taken their spoil, which belongs to Jesus, but at the cross, he has overcome the enemy. At the cross, Jesus has broken every chain, and when he returns, there's going to be nobody who's going to be able to stand against him. And in, in the same way that here in Genesis 14, we're about to see that you're going to have a righteous king, Melchizedek, and then you're going to have a wicked king, the king of Sodom. One day, all the hosts are going to be assembled before, before the Lord Jesus. And the righteous, they're going to celebrate with him. And the wicked, he's going to have nothing to do with him, just like Abram does in this passage. So let's, let's return now to Genesis 14 and look at, look at what we see in the rest of this passage. Verse 17. Now this begins, it begins with, with a, a report of Abram's return. So verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the king's who were with him. And I just want you to stop and appreciate that. This, this one, I mean, Abram's never even called a king. But this patriarch, I mean, he's acting like a king, isn't he? He's got a militia in his house. He's, he's protecting the people under him. And that one guy went against four kings and defeated them. And, and I think that, you know, Paul says in Romans 15... Um, he says, whatever was written in for, former days was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There, there are lots of reasons for us to be discouraged, but not if we think about the Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. If we think about the Lord, we think about accounts like this, where Abraham, with his little 318-man militia, goes and defeats those four kings. After his return, verse 17, from the defeat of Kedorlaomer Omer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now, it's interesting how the passage is going to go. It's going to go king of Sodom, and then Melchizedek is going to come on the scene, and then Melchizedek's going to talk, and what he's going to do is he's going to bless Abram. And then the king of Sodom is going to talk. And the first word out of, out of Melchizedek's mouth is blessed, and the first word out of the king of Sodom's mouth is, give, give me. And then Abram's going to answer the king of Sodom, and then there's going to be a, a sort of account. So the, these passages, it's almost like they're little self-contained units, verses 17 through 24. So uh, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then we're told he was priest of God Most High. It's really interesting what he does here in bringing out bread and wine. These things, these implements, are going to be used in the feasts of Israel. So Moses is the guy that's writing the Pentateuch, and Moses is the guy who knows what's going to happen on the night of the Passover. And Moses is the guy who's going to institute the ritual of the Passover, which includes things like unleavened bread and wine which celebrates the way that God provides for his people. And this is all building toward a celebration that we're going to enjoy today. So Melchizedek, he brings out bread and wine. He's priest of God Most High. I think this means, because of the way that Melchizedek, look at what he says in verse 19. 
and he blessed him. He ble- Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now look at what Abram says down in verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. And when you see those, those squashed capital letters, that's telling you that we're dealing with the name Yahweh. So Abram says, I've lifted my, name, my hand to Yahweh. Then look what he says, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram uses the same words to describe the living God that Melchizedek used to describe the living God. And, and I think this indicates that Abram and Melchizedek are worshiping the same God. So, so the, the Bible's not telling us about all the people of faith at this time in the world. Abram and Melchizedek are both worshiping the same God. They're both speaking of him in the same term. And this guy, Melchizedek, he blesses Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, verse 20. And, and this is what he says, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. And then here comes the king of Sodom. Uh, I was once in a, in a doctoral dissertation with um, Dr. Peter Gentry, who is a, he's, he's probably the most learned man that I know. And um, he said... Um, the king of Sodom, and I may get this wrong because I don't know this, I don't actually know this Dr. Seuss story. We, this is not one of the Dr. Seuss books that we read, but he's, is it Yertle the Turtle? Yertle the Turtle? He said the king of, of Sodom, his, his approach is the approach of Yertle the Turtle. And, and I mean, that's one of those things you, you never expect someone like Peter Gentry to say. But um, what, what he, in, in, the, in the Dr. Seuss story, I, I take it, that guy was all about himself. It was me, me, me. It was exalt me. And that's the way the king of Sodom comes out. The king of Sodom comes out. He's protected himself. He hasn't protected the people under his charge. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, and then I've I've read this, so I'm going to skip over it to verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, I want to try to say this. I I know I need to grow in various areas. One of the ways I need to grow in is gentleness and empathy. So I want to try that. I want to just try to be gentle here. Abraham is refusing to do to have anything to do with the king of Sodom. And we should think about the implications of that for our day. We're coming to a passage in Genesis 19 when we're going to see what the Sodomites are doing. And, and Abram's attitude... Now, Lot's attitude apparently was, I can get mixed up in this. I can associate with these people. And it just leads to Lot being carried off captive. And then it leads to Lot having to be... I mean, God... The text says that the angels had to forcibly lift Lot up and carry him out of Sodom. And it says God being merciful to him. This happened to him. Before fire was rained down from heaven and that place was destroyed. Abram's attitude to this is, I'm not going to be associated with this in any way. And I, you know, if, if the relevant applications of this are not immediately apparent to you and you don't understand what I'm saying, just come talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you exactly what, I'm, what, I'm, what I have in mind that I'm just going to avoid spelling out clearly. And maybe it's wrong for me to do that. Whatever. You can talk to me afterwards. Abram refuses to have anything to do with Sodom. And then look at what he says in verse 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. So he's providing for his men. 
and the share of the men who went with me, the lords of the covenant of Abram. He says, let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. They can, they can take from the plunder, but I'm not having any of that, that plunder. So it's kind of like David sending gifts to the elders of Judah after he uh, recaptures Ziklag. And then in the New Testament, maybe you're familiar with this. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, he, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, he spends a whole chapter reflecting on the similarity between Jesus and Melchizedek. Now, what's, what's blown my mind in the last few days as I've been reflecting on this is the way that the first part of, of Genesis 14, Abram's conquest, I, I, I want to suggest to you that the author of Judges, well, first, that Moses wrote that up thinking, this is going to be significant for stuff that's going to come after. And then the author of Judges comes along, and he gets the information about what happened with Gideon, and, he, and I think he concluded something like, what happened with Gideon is really similar to what happened with Abram. And Gideon sinned at the end with his ephod, and he writes it up so that you compare Abram's refusing to have anything to do with Sodom and Gideon's compromise, and, and then it becoming a snare to the people of Israel, and the text says that they hoard after that ephod, meaning they were spiritually adulterous against the Lord with that ephod that Gideon created. And then I think whoever it was that wrote the book of Samuel, they see this, and they're like Genesis 14 with Abram and uh, Judges 6 through 8 with Gideon, and now look at this episode with, in David's life. And I think at that point, the author is thinking, this, this pattern of events keeps happening, and here it is happening again with David, and we can expect more of this in the future. Something like this is going to happen in the future. Now, does that mean that they know that the eternal second person of the Godhead is going to take on flesh and come and redeem his... I don't think they, had, I don't think they necessarily knew exactly how all this was going to be fulfilled, but I think if we had said to them, do you expect this pattern of events to be fulfilled in the life of the future king from David's line, the future Messiah, they would have said, absolutely, everything is going to be fulfilled in him. And so what's remarkable about Psalm 110 is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David takes the victory of Abram, and it's like he weaves it together in the poetry with the the character of Melchizedek and what he stands for and represents in the passage. So here's what the author of Hebrews says about Melchizedek. I would encourage you to go read Hebrews 7. You don't even have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going I'm to just run through the points of contact between Melchizedek and David that are in, um, Melchizedek and Jesus, but it goes Melchizedek, Gideon, David, Jesus. So here are the points of contact. Um, first of all, Melchizedek is reigning in this place called Salem, which everybody agrees is ancient Jerusalem. It's, it's what Jerusalem was called before it started getting called Jerusalem. And his name, Melchizedek, it's built of two Hebrew words. The first one, the Melchi part, means king, and the Tzedek part means righteousness. So the king of righteousness is reigning in Salem. Well, well, who's going to be the king of righteousness that's going to reign in? That's exactly right. Jesus is going to reign in Jerusalem. And, and then the author of Hebrews, he picks up the fact that often, this can be confusing to people, but often in Genesis, you read about somebody's line of descent. This is very important in Genesis. We, we get Adam's line of descent traced in chapter 5, and then it's traced down to Abram in ch chapter 11. So genealogies are really important in Genesis. Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy. And also in Genesis, 
We, we read about how the main characters, they, they, they get born and they die. Well, we don't ever read about Melchizedek's birth or his death. And so the author of Hebrews, he picks up on this and he says, having neither father or mother or end of days. Now, I think he's being, you know, I think he, he doesn't mean to say Melchizedek is eternal. Melchizedek, but he does say, being like the Son of God, he abides forever. What, so he's picking up on a feature of the narrative. There's no, there's no mention of his birth, no mention of his death, no genealogy for him. And he says, that's kind of like Jesus, who never had a birth, who will never die. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And then he picks up on the way that, that Abraham gave a tithe to, uh, to Melchizedek. And the way that he pursues this is he says that it's almost like uh, the tribe of Levi, who eventually in Israel, they were the tribe that received tithes. Well, they're going to come from Abraham, and in a sense, Levi is in the loins of Abraham. So it's almost like the Levites, who received tithes, are paying tithes to this guy Melchizedek. And his point is, Mel the priesthood of Melchizedek is prior to the Levitical priesthood. It precedes it. And then he picks up on the way that um, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it is said to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he says, those Levitical priests, there was no statement like that made to them. There was no, they were not made priests by an oath, but Jesus was made a priest by an oath. So what he's doing is he's saying, Jesus' priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is an earlier and greater priesthood than the priesthood of the Levites. There are other things that he says. But I just want to conclude by observing the way that those Levitical priests, as the author of Hebrews says, they could make nothing perfect. They, they, they had to offer sins for themselves, and then day after day, they had to offer those sacrifices. But the author of Hebrews, talking about the Lord Jesus, he says of him, I want to read this to you, in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Those, those Levitical priests, they all died. They were men. Jesus always lives. And whereas the Levitical priesthood could make nothing perfect, Jesus saves us to the uttermost. He has offered up, up, up himself and so I just want to offer you in conclusion a few points of, of application here. I mean, maybe I hope that you felt application coming all through the sermon. But I would encourage you to sort of step back from this and look at the way that the Father set up the world and orchestrated history to glorify the Son. God... God caused those things to happen with Abram and Lot so that there would be a preview of what Jesus would do for his people. And then he did it again with Gideon. And then he did it again with David. And then he, he so worked in David's heart through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that David understood and wrote Psalm 110. And then Jesus comes and fulfills it in ways that, that go beyond our wildest expectations. So look at how God set up the world to honor Christ and worship the Father 
through Christ. And then, as another kind of another angle on that application, look at how the biblical authors understood what God was doing. And, and I think this indicates that they were thinking hard about narratives that maybe seemed obscure to them. They're meditating on the Bible. We should, we should follow them in this. Related to this, we, we must set our hope on Christ who has rescued us, who will come for us. He's our only hope, really. The, the powers that are at work in the world, they're too much for any one of us. But they're not too much for Jesus. We have a priest according to the order of Melchizedek through whom we draw near to God. Finally, let's have nothing to do with the king of Sodom. Let us have nothing to do with the king of Sodom. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. You are a good, good father. And we have, we have many questions, Lord. We have many pains. We have many struggles. And Lord, I know it, it wasn't pleasant for Lot to be carried off captive. And it wasn't pleasant for David's wives to be carried off captive. And Father, there are many ways that we can look at our lives and think, I don't see how you're going to bring good out of this. I don't know why this was necessary. I don't know why you would allow this. And so, Father, we cry out to you to help us to trust you that somehow it's all going to magnify the glory of your Son, our Savior, the lover of our souls. Keep us in faith, Lord. Keep us in faith. Make us unified around the Lord Jesus. Make us a people who proclaim the gospel at every opportunity. And Lord, we pray that you would make us like Christ, like David, like Abraham. People who are willing to take risks for the kingdom. People who are willing to go get those we love. Lord, keep us from being hard-hearted or callous. Help us to remember the way that we've been loved. We love you, we thank you, we worship you, we praise you. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.